Is it a sin? Is it a crime? Loving you dear like I do. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty. Guilty of loving you. Hello, hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 32 of Criminal Broads, a true crime and history podcast about wild women on the wrong side of the law. I'm your host, Tori Telfer, true crime writer, author of Lady Killers, and as you know, if you've been listening to this, currently working on, not stressing out about, (laughs) just working on a book about con women that I think is going to be really fun to read once I'm done with it in approximately... 10 million and a half years. Um, As you listen to this podcast today, guess where I will be? I will be in jury duty. How on brand is that? I gotta say, this is my first time ever being called for jury duty. I am excited to sort of see this part of the system that I often write about from the inside. But also, I'm human and I'm really annoyed. And as a freelancer, I'm really stressed (laughs) about losing a day of work and a is it gonna, am I going to lose more than a day of work? I don't know how this goes yet. So I've heard sometimes you're in there for 15 minutes and then you're out again. Of course, sometimes you don't get chosen. And sometimes you get selected for the dreaded three-month trial. But I think you... I don't think they can make a freelancer do that. <laughs> anyway, um, stay tuned next time. I'll let you know how it goes. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks for listening. Glad to have you here. Um, You may have noticed lately in the world that there has been a significant uptick in Manson content, in Charles Manson content. Uh, I believe there are two, maybe three Manson films out right now. Um, Manson is obviously going to be a uh, character in the new season of Mindhunter, which I'm very excited about. And there have just been a lot of articles and podcasts and what have you about Charles Manson lately. Why is that? Well, if you didn't know, we just had the 50th anniversary of the Manson murders. Uh, Those happened on August 8th and 9th, 2000. uh, Sorry, those happened on August 8th and 9th, 1969. And so um, this past August 8th and 9th, 2019 was the 50th anniversary. So um, a very sad day for a lot of people as well as a significant day in not just true crime history, but history in general. I mean, say what you will about true crime, but there's no denying that the Manson murders uh, were a cult- have become a cultural touchstone. You know, we can't talk about hippies, the hippie counterculture, without the Manson murders. We can't talk about cults. We can't talk about, um, you know, youth culture and sort of the the... The problems that happen when the country abandons its its youths without talking about the Manson murders. Anyway, um, this is not going to be a podcast unpacking the social significance of the murders. There are a million ones out there about that. But uh, I figured this would be an appropriate time to cover one aspect of the Manson cult. And I remembered that several months ago, I had a reader request from my awesome listener, Andy. Hi, Andy, to cover this girl who was not there on the night of the the nights of the murders, but was very, very much involved 
in Charles Manson's family. So we're going to cover her today. We're going back to the summer of 69, which was beautiful and dreadful. If you haven't read the Joan uh, Didion essay about it, I think it's called Slouching Towards Bethlehem. That's the name of the essay, if I'm not mistaken. You got to read it just to get a sense of the sort of oppressive dread that seemed to be hanging over Los Angeles that year. Anyway, we're traveling back to the 60s. Uh, We're back in California, just where we were last episode. And um, I'd just like to give a little bit of a content warning here. I'm sure most of you know about the Manson murders, and we're not going to go into depth, but they are disturbing, and Charles Manson is a disturbing person, and so there is some stuff in here about um, sexual abuse and a few graphic details of violence, so just letting you know that that's coming. All right, buckle up, and we're going to go on a wild ride into the dark heart of hippie counterculture and the man at the center of it all who some say was a genius and some say was a madman, and one of the girls who very, very, very much loved him. August 10th, 1969, a horrible headline screamed from the front page of the Los Angeles Times. Ritualistic slayings. Sharon Tate, four others, murdered. The article walked readers through the horror, step by step. The victims were shot, stabbed, or throttled. On the front door of the home, written in blood, was one word, pig. Killed were Miss Tate, 26, a star of Valley of the Dolls and wife of Roman Polanski, director of Rosemary's Baby. She was eight months pregnant. He is in England. Abigail Folger, 26, heiress to the Folger's coffee family. Jay Sebring, 35, a Hollywood hairstylist credited with launching the trend to hairstyling for men. Wojtek Frykowski, 37, who worked with Polanski in Polish films before they came to Hollywood. Stephen Parent, 18, of El Monte, who left his home Friday morning after telling his family he was going to go to Beverly Hills. A maid, Mrs. Winifred Chapman, went to the sprawling home at the end of Cielo Drive at 8.30 a.m. to begin her day's work. What she found sent her running to a neighbor's home in a state of shock. In a white two-door sedan in the driveway was the body of the young man, slumped back in the driver's seat, shot to death. On the lawn in front of the ranch-style home was the body of Frykowski. Twenty yards away, under a fir tree on the well-trimmed lawn, was the body of Miss Folger, clad in a nightgown. In the living room, dressed in underwear, bikini panties and a brassiere, was Miss Tate. A bloodied nylon cord was around her neck. It ran over a beam in the open beam ceiling and was tied around the neck of Sebring, whose body lay nearby. Over Sebring's head was a black hood. It seemed ritualistic, said one investigating officer. Said another, it looked like a battlefield up in there. Before anyone in the city could catch their breath, the next day's headlines broke. Two ritual slayings follow killing of five. The papers didn't know it yet, but the two dead victims were Leno and Rosemary LaBianca. 
Before their names came out in the press, the details of their mutilated bodies did. Detectives said the man's head was covered with a white hood, his chest pierced by a meat carving fork, which had evidently been used to cut the word war and XXX into the flesh. His body was found on the living room floor. The woman's body, clad in pajamas, was found in the bedroom of the isolated single-story house at 3306 Waverly Drive, her back ripped to pieces by what police said may have been a knife or a whip. It wasn't until almost four months later that the murderers were arrested, and when the world saw their faces, four lanky-haired hippie girls, Susan Atkins, Linda Kasabian, Patricia Krenwinkel, Leslie Van Houten, two drugged-out-looking men, Tex Watson and Steve Grogan, and their leader, a tiny, wild-haired, wild-eyed man named Charles Manson who sort of looked like Jesus if Jesus had stopped showering, done way too much LSD, and been hit by a truck several times— when the world saw their faces, they were shocked. This was a group of losers, really, who buoyed themselves along with banal statements about love and oneness and the looming apocalypse. But over the course of two bloody nights, this ramshackle group of nobodies had changed the course of history and put a permanent stain on the 1960s. They had done what Manson wanted them to do. They'd forced the world to pay attention. The girls, of course, attracted the most attention. They were pretty teenagers. One of them had been a homecoming queen, for God's sake. But while those girls were out murdering, there were other girls. Manson's girls. The ones he didn't choose for the killing. The ones who stayed home and helped him achieve his mad vision in different ways. Some of them would eventually escape his grasp, but others would stay loyal forever, and though they didn't get to kill for him that night, they'd always wish that they could have. This is the story of one of the other Manson girls, a girl who wasn't there on the nights of August 8th and 9th, 1969, but who was faithful to the end anyway. Lynette Fromm is 38 now. She hasn't seen Charles Manson in more than 12 years, yet she remains close. He's a once-in-a-lifetime soul. He's, he's a spirit. He's got a lot of spirit. He's got more heart and spirit than anyone I've ever met. And he's truthful. History would know Lynette Fromm by her infantilizing nickname, Squeaky. But she was born Lynette, born into a middle-class Southern Californian household that looked like the American dream if you were standing on the sidewalk and watching it from the outside. Her mom stayed home and kept dinner hot. Her father was a successful aeronautical engineer who worked for the defense industry. Their little red-haired girl, Squeaky, loved to dance, and when she was about 10 years old, she joined a touring dance group called the Westchester Lariats. They traveled all over the country, kicking up their heels at Walt Disney's ranch, on TV, and even at the White House. Before she was a teenager, Squeaky had seen more of the country than most kids ever would. Plus, she was a studious, hard-working girl who took theater classes, wrote poetry, and got good grades. From the outside, her life looked normal, even blessed. But from the inside, the house was cold, and Squeaky was terribly lonely. 
Her father was an icy, distant man who was so obsessed with his work that he had no time for his little girl. She wrote once that he bared his teeth to me when he tried to teach me algebra. They didn't agree on anything. They fought all the time. Squeaky's biographer, Jess Bravin, speculates that her father may have sexually abused her, though this is something Squeaky always denied. All we can say for sure is that the absence of her father's love created a void in Squeaky's heart that would direct her actions for the rest of her life. In high school, Squeaky began slipping. She was no longer the good theater kid who brought home A's. She was taking LSD, fighting with her parents, and moving further away from the signifiers of the middle class. She did manage to graduate high school and even started community college, but one horrible day, after an especially shattering argument with her father, he officially kicked her out, and just like that, Squeaky went from a girl with a home to a girl without one. So, 18-year-old Squeaky gathered up her books, her dictionary, and her eye makeup, and hitchhiked to Venice Beach, crying the entire way there. She'd chosen Venice because she remembered that beatniks lived there, but when she got out of the car and faced the ocean and the palm trees and the beatniks with their unfamiliar faces, she was terrified. So, she sat on a bench, clutching her belongings, and waited for something to happen, for someone to save her. It was right then that she heard a voice. What's the problem? And she looked up into the dirty face and bright smile of Charles Manson. In Squeaky's memoir, which she started in the 70s and finally published in 2018, she vividly describes the moment she met Manson. Quote, Suddenly, an elfish, dirty-looking creature in a little cap hopped over the low wall, grinning, saying, What's the problem? He was either old or very young, I couldn't tell. He had a two-day beard and reminded me of a fancy bum, rather elegant, but my fear was up. How did you know, I started to say, and he smiled really bright, and I had the strangest feeling that he knew my thoughts. Up in the hate I'm called the gardener, he said. I tend to all the flower children. My mind was struck with the thought that a gardener plants seeds, and I became more afraid and clenched my legs together. It's all right, he told me, and I could feel in his voice that it was. He had the most delicate, quick motion, like magic, as if glided along by air, and a smile that went from warm daddy to twinkly devil. I couldn't tell what he was. So your father kicked you out, he said with certainty, and once again my mind went with the wind, and I laughed and relaxed. We talked, and I felt very good with him, and freer, much freer. The way out of a room is not through the door, he said, laughing. Just don't want out, and you're free. Then he unfolded a tale of the 20 years he'd spent behind bars, of the struggle and the giving up and the loving of himself. We came back to the fact that I didn't have any place to go. He told me that he was on his way to the woods up north and that I could come with him if I wished. I declined, having obligations to fulfill, having three weeks of my first college semester left. Then I looked up at him, wanting to get up, crunching up my face in thought. 
Squeaky couldn't see it then, and never would, but the Manson that charmed her so entirely was neither a bright little twinkly elf nor a warm father figure. He was a 32-year-old career criminal, born to an alcoholic mother and an absentee father, and by the time he was hopping over walls to impress 18-year-olds, he'd been in prison for more than half of his life. In fact, when he met Squeaky, he'd been released from his latest prison term only two months earlier. And he hadn't even wanted to leave then. He'd told authorities when they were about to kick him out of there that prison was his only home. But he was scrappy and inventive, and so he found a new home in the beds of disillusioned middle-class Californian teenage girls. Prison had been useful for this burgeoning con artist. It had given him a crash course education in topics like grifting and manipulation, and behind those gray walls he'd studied Scientology, mind control techniques, and the teachings of Dale Carnegie, author of How to Win Friends and Influence People. Manson decided that once he got out of jail, he was going to become a pimp, because he figured he'd be really good at manipulating young girls into doing his bidding. And that's sort of what happened. He became a pimp, but a pimp conveniently disguised behind the aesthetics of the hippie counterculture. A pimp who hid his malevolent, unhinged agenda in a miasma of LSD and free love and songs played around campfires. A pimp who had one skill that dwarfed all the others. He could always tell when a young woman had daddy issues. So, when Manson asked Squeaky to come with him, and she declined, he just said, well, I can't make up your mind for you. And then he smiled at her and started to walk away. And she was done for. I grabbed my books, running to catch up with him, wrote Squeaky. I didn't know why. I didn't care. And I never left. wasn't Manson's first lost girl. The man already had another girl who went wherever he went, and so Squeaky joined their little love nest, which kept on expanding as Manson found more lonely girls who hated their dads, hated their bodies, and or hated the world in general. Their life together got sexual pretty quickly. The first time that Squeaky and Manson had sex, he ordered her to take off her clothes, which she did, and she found herself wishing that he would get violent with her. The ensuing encounter was fraught with more daddy issues than Freud himself would have been able to deal with. I felt close to him and laid my head on his shoulder, wanting a daddy to hold me, she wrote. I hoped that he would pursue me or touch me or rape me or anything good, really, yet without me giving up to it. It was a little girl game I wanted to play. But instead, he told me, so you've been hurt, and now you've locked yourself up. You've got all your love tied up in the past and associated with bad or sad experiences. You wanted your daddy to hit you, didn't you? It was so, and I nodded. Now, you didn't have to be some sort of psychological genius to figure out that a girl whose dad had recently kicked her out of her house would associate her love with her father with pain, but it was simplistic statements like these that made Manson a god in the eyes of his followers. When he said things like, you've got all your love tied up in the past, 
It didn't seem like the statement of an ex-con who'd read a Dale Carnegie book in prison. No, it seemed like this little elven man was looking straight into their souls, that he was the only one who really knew them. Even when he forced the girls to do things that they weren't comfortable with, like the time he asked Squeaky to watch him have sex with other girls, he was able to spin it in a way that made the whole thing seem almost spiritual. When writing about that moment, Squeaky remembered feeling, quote, initial discomfort, but she doesn't dwell on or examine that discomfort. She casts it off as though it were some bland middle-class moral that was just weighing her down. I saw moving artwork and dance, she wrote instead, tenderness and surrender. Charlie wanted her to be cool with it, and so she was cool with it. As Charlie and his girls blossomed into what would become known ominously as the family, Squeaky became his second in command. She liked the power, and the more girls Manson picked up, the more senior she became. They drove around California in an old school bus and eventually ended up squatting at Spawn Movie Ranch in the San Fernando Valley. The ranch was an old western movie set, which must have lent a surreal aspect to the family's time there. They were literally living on top of the crumbling facade of the golden age of Hollywood. No one was telling anyone to kill just yet, but there was a darkness growing in the heart of the family, no matter how much LSD they dropped or how much Manson rambled on about love. The place was filthy and falling apart. They ate food from dumpsters. Manson, always exercising his pimp skills, would make the girls give sexual favors to other men. He could be violent. For example, when it came to the youngest family member on the ranch, Diane Lake, who'd met Manson when she was just 14, he whipped her with an extension cord, slapped her in the face, and once raped her. Despite all the emphasis on sex with Manson, their father figure, the girls seemed to ignore or repress the violence that inevitably came along with it. Once Charlie hit Squeaky so hard that she flew across the room, but she said later that it was, quote, just what I needed. Even her nickname had an uncomfortable backstory. She was called Squeaky because when the elderly owner of the ranch would grab her, she apparently squeaked in surprise. It's disgusting, right? And yet, like all things Manson, it could be reinterpreted as something cute, innocent, spiritual, beautiful. Maybe that old man was just being loving. After all, wasn't loving the point of life? And wasn't sex just an expression of that love? As the summer of 1969 dragged on and on towards its hottest days, Manson's ramblings got more and more intense. He'd taken to raving about an upcoming race war, an apocalypse. He was stockpiling guns and cars. He kept talking about having his followers commit a crime that would shock the world, a crime that would somehow, inexplicably, start a race war between black people and white people and also earn them a few extra bucks in the meantime because the family always needed money. And so, on the night of August 8th, 1969, he packed his chosen killers into a car and told them to ride off into the darkness and wreak havoc. Make it a real nice murder, just as bad as you've ever seen, he told Tex Watson, and get all their money. 
next. Squeaky stayed home. Why didn't she go with the group? Some speculate that she was simply too physically small to be good at murder, and that she had a reputation for being, well, kind of childish. You didn't want someone with the nickname Squeaky along when you were planning to kill. Maybe Manson had a sense that when it came to getting the bloody deed done, Squeaky had the passion but not the skill. As we'll see shortly, her entire life was characterized by incompetence. She was willing to do absolutely anything for Charles Manson, but she wasn't terribly good at any of it. And so, as Patricia Krenwinkel chased Abigail Folger across the lawn with a knife, and as Tex Watson stabbed Sharon Tate as she cried, Mother, Mother, and as blood spattered the beautiful house, Squeaky stayed home. Her time to prove her loyalty would come later. During Manson's trial, journalists wrote shocked pieces about his strange hold over his nomadic tribe, both those in and out of jail. Squeaky was the one leading those out of jail, and she and her fellow cult members would camp outside of the courtroom during the trial, holding knives and vowing to stay there until Charlie walked free. When Manson carved an X into his forehead because he was Xing himself out of the world, Squeaky did, too. She slept in a sleeping bag. She never wore shoes. She was one of his chief lieutenants, a journalist wrote. Lieutenants who served, quote, as his legal runners and go-betweens with others of the accused, persons offering legal counsel, and potential financial benefactors. She was arrested for loitering and endangering public safety after she and another girl flashed their knives at passersby, but that didn't quell her spirit. If before Squeaky had been in charge of running the ranch, now she was in a similar role, organizing and strategizing. There were just more cameras around now, but the cameras didn't bother her. As long as her god was still alive, there was work to do, and the work was all for him. Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Guys, our first sponsor is someone I am, I kid you not, so excited about. The sponsor is The Great Courses Plus. Why am I excited? Let me tell you. You might not know this about me, but I was homeschooled as a child, and I distinctly remember getting a catalog for a business called The Great Courses, which was full of a courses from Harvard professors, Princeton professors that you could order and listen to. And my mom was telling me that I could pick out one. <laughs> Today, The Great Courses Plus is now on your smartphone. You can listen to thousands of courses right on your phone, just like you would a podcast. There's also video versions uh, on any topic from women warriors in history. Obviously, that's up our alley. Uh, there's one on the history of the CIA that I really want to check out because you know there are some shady secrets tucked in the CIA's history. And there are even practical courses on cooking or painting or photography that you could take. So, the course I would like to recommend to you specifically today is called Forensic History, Crimes, Frauds, and Scandals, and it's taught by a legitimate forensic anthropologist named Professor Murray. Now, the courses she covers are famous ones, Jack the Ripper, Lizzie Borden, The Black Dahlia, 
but she covers them from a forensic anthropologist's perspective. So you might think you know everything about these cases, but you don't. You're going to love it if you check it out. And you want to check it out? Great, because I have a fantastic deal for you. I have got you one month of unlimited access to The Great Courses Plus for free. But uh, to claim it, you've got to go to this specific link. You've got to go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash broads. All right. So again, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash broads and let me know how you like it. I think you're going to love it. Our second sponsor for today is a podcast that I guarantee is right up your alley if you like criminal broads. Um, I'm going to play the promo and let you hear about it for yourself, but it is called Pretend Radio. At the heart of every crime, there's a lie. In order to do this job well, you're going to have to learn to lie. But you're going to have to remember who you're lying to and when to lie and when not to lie. But a lie is only powerful if you choose to believe it. It all came out. All the story came out. It turned out he had two wives and five fiancés. That he wasn't marrying women because he loved them. He was actively impregnating women to rip them off for money, me being one of them. So why do we fall for it every time? My, my father taught me at a young age. He, just, he says, Carl, the two easiest things to sell anybody, anything that'll improve their looks and anything that'll make them money. And that's what you want to sell. Pretend Radio is a documentary podcast about people pretending to be someone else. I interview real con artists, snake oil salesmen, and former cult members, anyone living a lie. Search for Pretend Radio wherever you get your podcasts. trial, Squeaky was called to testify, and on the witness stand, she raved about her Charlie. She said that the man who'd saved her on Venice Beach was always happy, that he was a man of a thousand faces, that he made everything into a game, and that he, quote, sees things as they are and does not judge. Oh, yes, the man who told his acolytes to purposefully kill their victims violently, to use knives to create as much damage as possible before giving in to the sharp mercy of a gunshot, to create a crime scene so disturbing that the world would somehow, according to his rhetoric, assume that it was the work of black people so that his beloved race war would start and he would go underground to have sex with underage girls only to emerge later as the true ruler of the earth. Yes, this man certainly did not judge whatsoever. If you listened to Squeaky and didn't read the papers, you might think she was a loopy high schooler talking about her art school boyfriend. Cliché and sort of annoying, but harmless. Charlie is in love with love, and I'm in love with love, and so we are in love with each other, she said. But it wasn't harmless. Not at all. While Squeaky was never charged with anything directly involved in the Tate-LaBianca murders, it was not for lack of trying. On December 18, 1970, she was jailed and charged with conspiracy to murder a witness for the prosecution. She was again jailed for trying to keep a witness from testifying by giving her a hamburger laced with LSD. 
With bizarre charges like these on her record, it was starting to seem like the only reason Squeaky didn't kill anyone was because Manson hadn't asked her to. On January 26, 1971, Charles Manson was found guilty. He was given the death penalty and moved up to Folsom Prison, and, like clockwork, Squeaky followed him. As she waited for him to be freed and or for the apocalypse to start, she had another run-in with the law. In 1972, she and two other women from the family fell in with two members of the Aryan Brotherhood, and this new group had befriended a young married Marine veteran named James Willett. The Aryan Brotherhood men made a living out of armed robbery, and when James got wind of this and threatened to tell the police, they reacted by taking him out to an abandoned location, making him dig his own grave, killing and burying him. Then, perhaps because she was going to go to the police, they shot his young wife in the head. The only person they spared was the Willett's eight-month-old daughter. As far as what Squeaky knew or did in that situation, we don't know. Once again, Squeaky Fromm had been closely involved with homicidal psychopaths, wrote a journalist years later, and once again, she walked away. She was arrested, but there was no evidence that she'd been directly involved in the killings, and so she went free. As the years trickled by, other members of the family slowly emerged from their haze. They admitted that Manson had been wrong. They changed their names. They disappeared from the public eye. They tried to be good again but not Squeaky. She seemed stuck in the past, forever that angry 18-year-old girl rescued by the ocean. She raged that people treated her like a child, but there was something perpetually childish about her, even as she grew into her late 20s. In 1975, she and another Manson girl showed up at a newspaper office in Sacramento wearing hooded red robes with a statement from Manson that blamed the former president, Richard Nixon, for the fact that he was in jail. Squeaky and her friends told the journalists that they were nuns now and that they were busy cleaning the earth. It sounded like the make-believe of a kid. She looked ridiculous in her homemade red robe, which she claimed was red with the sacrifice, the blood of the sacrifice. It was the mid-70s, and the world had moved on from the Manson murders. No one cared about this weird girl still clinging to her hippie past— but Squeaky hadn't moved on at all, and no one realized that when she talked about blood and sacrifice, she was deadly serious. With Manson in prison, Squeaky had made it her mission to bring attention to his quote-unquote environmental agenda, and now she'd gotten it into her head that she needed to save the California Redwoods badly. So she sent off press releases and threatening messages to anyone who would listen, but when no one did, she decided to take things one step further. On September 5th, 1975, she wriggled into her homemade red robe and hood, it made her look like an elf, people said, and tucked an automatic pistol into her leg holster. Then she made her way to the Sacramento Capitol, where President Gerald Ford was scheduled to appear. She milled around for a bit, asking a nearby policeman what route the president was going to take. He refused to tell her. Before long, the president himself had arrived and was mingling with the crowd, saying hello. 
His Secret Service agents were watching everyone closely and watching specifically their hands. One of them said later that it's all well and good to watch people's faces for that sudden moment of murderous intent, but the hands are more important because if you're going to kill somebody, you're going to use your hands. And he was right. Suddenly, a skinny arm in a red sleeve shot out of the crowd, holding a pistol, and a high-pitched voice cried, This country is in a mess! This man is not your president! The agent sprang at the arm and wrestled Squeaky to the ground. Her gun clicked, but no bullet came out. Newspapers later reported that the gun was unloaded, but there were actually four rounds of ammunition in the clip, just none in the chamber. It didn't go off, she shrieked. It didn't go off. An hour and a half later, President Ford continued about his day. He was due to appear in front of the California legislature to give a speech on crime, and appear he did. Peace on 10th Street in Sacramento is as important to the people who walk and work there as peace in the Sinai Desert, he intoned. One man or woman or child becomes just as dead from a switchblade slash as from a nuclear missile blast. We must prevent both. I've said it throughout the years, Lynette Fromm is extremely dangerous, said Vincent Bugliosi, the lawyer who prosecuted Manson, when he heard about her assassination attempt. But was she dangerous, really? A writer who had covered the Manson trial wrote a piece for the Boston Globe about Squeaky's, quote, life of ineptitude, and how that ineptitude was manifest in her cry, it didn't go off. He'd been keeping track of a long list of failures that Squeaky had had throughout the trial. She'd lost letters that she was supposed to smuggle to Manson. She got caught and charged every single time she tried to help Manson's case. LSD hamburger, anyone? And at one point, when she was trying to smuggle drugs to Manson, the drugs just fell out of her shirt and clattered on the jail's floor. Her failure to shoot the president was just one more thing that she didn't succeed at, although, to be fair, she did earn one superlative from the attempt. She was now the first woman who had ever tried to kill a U.S. president. For trying to kill a U.S. president, she was sentenced to life in prison. She was a disruptive force in the courtroom, just like Manson had been. She pitched an apple at the prosecutor and knocked his glasses off, and at one point she rambled so much about saving the redwood trees that she had to be removed from the room. As with most of what Squeaky said, her monologue didn't make a lot of sense. The girl must have been on at least 1,000 acid trips in her life, said one of the detectives who worked on the Tate murder case. It was just not possible to hold a rational conversation with her. In jail, she ate a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and told her jailer, when people around you treat you like a child and pay no attention to the things you say, you have to do something. Her face made the cover of the September 15, 1975 issue of Time magazine. It wasn't a flattering article. The writer called her a social misfit, a psychological cripple, a social aberration, an amoral freak. And yet you couldn't deny that at least she'd been finally given some attention. The real attention she craved, though, would always be held slightly beyond her reach. 
There was a lot of competition between the girls, said Bugliosi, and Squeaky was trying to impress Charlie. They all want to be Charlie's girl. In jail, Squeaky and Manson sometimes wrote to each other. She even managed to escape right before the Christmas of 1987 because she'd heard that Charles Manson was sick and she was determined to visit him, though she was caught less than two days later trudging along a street in the cold. The escape attempt added time to her sentence, but eventually she was given mandatory parole and in 2009 she was released into a world completely different from the nightmare hippie paradise she'd experienced in 1969. This was a world of Facebook, of iPhones, a world where Charles Manson was a face you could print on t-shirts and postcards, a world scared of men with guns instead of hippies with knives. Squeaky moved to upstate New York with her boyfriend, who'd done some time in prison for manslaughter, and the two of them live there to this day. Neighbors describe them as friendly, despite the fact that their house is decorated with skulls. They don't get involved with drama, one of them said. In Squeaky's memoir, which was finally published in 2018, everything becomes beautiful in retrospect. Her time at Spawn Ranch, which was characterized by food pulled from garbage cans, physical and emotional abuse by a volatile maniac, and cheesy spiritual cliches muttered under the influence of LSD and barbiturates, becomes a sun-drenched summer camp full of kindred spirits who knew how to truly love. It was like the island of lost boys on Peter Pan's island, where no one grows old, she said once. And she maintained this perspective forever, even as she herself actually did grow old. She'd been frozen in time by Manson himself. He'd seen her terrified face as she sat there on that Venice beach bench, and he had known exactly who she was, not because he was a genius or a guru, but because he'd been driving up and down California looking for girls just like her, teenagers wanting to experience the adult world of freedom and drugs and sex, but whose young hearts still longed for unconditional love. And so he offered her love, and she took it, no matter how bad it made her look. Once, describing why she'd followed Manson so faithfully, she said, A dog goes to somebody who loves it and takes care of it. Decades later, released from prison and nearing 70 years old, she smiled when a documentary filmmaker asked her about the love of her life. Was I in love with Charlie? Yeah, she said. Oh, yeah. Oh, still am. Still am. I don't think you fall out of love. The end. That was the story of Lynette, a.k.a. Squeaky. A complicated figure, right? It's, uh, it's easy for me to feel sorry for her and also feel enraged at her and want to shake her and also feel sorry for her 
and also feel enraged. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening. Please, if you liked this episode, consider leaving a review on iTunes. It would be so awesome. And if you'd like to see some bonus content about Squeaky and the Manson family, sign up to become a patron at patreon.com slash criminalbroads. That's a great way for you to support the podcast, and you will get, uh, after every episode, a little... uh, little bonus post with some photos and interesting tidbits that I didn't fit here. Um, you know, there are also rewards like postcards and posters that you can get. Who doesn't like something you can put on your fridge? Am I right? All right. Um, I think that's all. Thank you for, as always, for coming along this ride with me. And get excited for next episode because we are going, it's going to be a special one. Um, We are going to be delving into the story of a woman who survived something very terrible and lived to be a true badass to this day. So those stories are always fun to cover. I think that's all I have to tell you. Uh, Instagram.com slash criminal broads if you want to see photos of Squeaky and her homemade red robe. I mean, it's it's so nerdy. You kind of want to hug her. But then it's like Squeaky. Take the leg holster off. Stop trying to assassinate the president and move on. Anyway, Instagram.com slash criminal broads for photos of things we've talked about in this episode. And have a wonderful August. Enjoy these last couple weeks of summer. And I'll talk to you next time. Have a good one. Bye. Maybe I'm right. Maybe I'm wrong. Loving you, dear, like I do. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty, guilty of loving you. And in a recent NBC interview, Manson said he has no remorse. He claims he didn't kill anyone. You've got it stuck in your brain that I murdered somebody. What do you want to call me a murderer for? I've never killed anyone. I don't need to kill anyone. I think it. I have it here. Maybe I should have killed four or five hundred people, then I would have felt better. Then when I felt like I really offered society something. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.